We're doing a study in the book of Acts, and we've got a couple more weeks, and then we're going to wrap it up. And then next year, right after Easter, we'll pick up where we left off in the book of Acts, and we'll continue to do that until we complete the book of Acts. Uh, I was at the gym this past week <clears throat> working out, and uh, a guy that's a local pastor here in town, he came up to me, we're, we were talking, he's a great guy, and uh, he said, hey, uh, you're doing a study in the book of Acts, and I said, yeah, and he goes, yeah, I heard like your first message, it was really good, he said, uh, where are you at now? I said, Acts 2. He goes, Acts 2? You're barely in Acts 2? I said, well, yeah, you know, we're taking our time, we're not rushing through this. And, uh, you know, Acts 2, 1 through 4, as we've been talking about for the last several weeks, is significant. It's that portion of Scripture in the book of Acts that that sets the stage uh, for the rest of the book of Acts and really for the church age. But I've got good news for you. We are out of uh, Acts 1 through 4. We're going to actually start in verse 4 through verse 13. Let's go to the Word and let's read it together. Uh, Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. It says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and they were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. Verse 12. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, they, were, they are full of new wine. Let's pray. God, thank you for the opportunity that we have to be in church. Thank you for the time of worship where we're able to just get our, our eyes and our minds off of ourselves, off of our lives, our own circumstances, as difficult as they might be right now in our life, and to focus on you, uh, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, knowing that he that's begun a good work in us will complete it. And so, God, thank you for uh, the opportunity that we now have to study the Word. Thank you that the Word produces life, and the Word produces wholeness, and it makes our life more whole and complete. Now, Lord, may all distractions be minimized, and may each of us have ears to hear and hearts to receive the engrafted Word which is able to save our souls. And, Father, we pray for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ right now, in Iraq, in, in Syria, in Iran, those, God, in Egypt that are fleeing their homes and their churches and Christians are being persecuted and killed and Christian churches are being burnt to the ground. Uh, God, we pray your grace and blessing to be with them. We ask that you would give them strength and that we would be inspired by their faith, Lord, and that we would be as serious uh, to live out our faith in America with the freedoms that we have as they do under great persecution. They're in our hearts today, God, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. All right, so in Acts 2, it's the day of Pentecost. We've talked about what that Feast of Pentecost meant. This is the beginning of the New Testament church. Uh, Some historians tell us that at this particular feast that there were over 200,000 guests, added visitors that would come into Jerusalem for this particular celebration. So when, when God showed up and God has the best timing. When God showed up on the day of Pentecost, sound from heaven, rushing mighty wind, cloven tongues of fire, 120 devoted followers of Jesus in an upper room began to pray in other tongues. The Spirit gave them utterance. It drew the attention 
of literally thousands upon thousands, and they gathered outside of this upper room where this event was uh, occurring. And the people that were there were literally from all around the world, the known world at that time. And they were all hearing in their own language these Galileans, which when uh, Luke, who was the author of the book of Acts, when he brings out that particular fact, he's reminding the readers that Galileans were considered kind of like the lowest of the low. They were kind of backwoods, uneducated uh, individuals. So for these sophisticated people from around the world who had the time and the money to travel to Jerusalem for this very special time of worship, they were blown away and amazed when they heard these Galileans who had a, a, a dialect that they couldn't even pronounce certain words. And yet they heard them speak in their own language, in their own tongue, in a perfect dialect, the wonderful works of God. And so many people were amazed and perplexed, but yet, it says in verse 13, it says, others mocking said that they are full of new wine. You know, anytime uh, God begins to bless, God begins to pour out his grace, God begins to pour out his spirit on a, on a life, on a family, uh, on, on a community, in a church, there will be those that will come and say, wow, wh what's God doing here? And uh, we've never experienced anything like this. And, you know, they want to be a part of it. And they're curious and they're seekers and they're searching. And on this day, we'll read, we'll study it next week, about 3,000 people were added to the church and were saved uh, after this moment when Peter stood up and he began to preach. But there were those that mocked. You know, I'd venture to say many of you kind of had the same experience. Uh, you know, when you gave your life to Jesus, when you determined that you were going to sell out to Christ and that you were not going to play games, you were not going to straddle the fence, you were not going to have one foot in and one foot out, you were going to go all in for Jesus, and you were going to be an on-fire follower of Christ. As soon as you crossed that invisible line and made that determination, decision to, to go all in for Jesus, your family and friends probably looked at you and think, what is wrong with you? You know, I mean, I remember when I was in the world doing worldly things and living like the devil, basically, you know, like my family and friends, they're like, he's normal. He's doing what normal teenagers do. As soon as I got radically saved and filled with the Spirit, and I started reading my Bible and carrying my Bible everywhere. I started going to church and I started tithing. They thought I was in a cult. <laughs> they go, what's wrong with you? Like, what do you mean? Was, you should have asked me that question when I, was, when I was in the world, you know. Now I'm serious for Jesus. And you're like, what's wrong with you? You know, we think there's a problem here. When you go all in for God, there are going to be others the world's going to mock. Look at how the world mocks Christianity today. And, and, and this is not, you know, wearing our feelings on our sleeves and, oh, poor Christians. No, no. I mean, some of the toughest people in the world are Christians. Not necessarily those who live in America, per se, but Christians in China right now or Christians in the Middle East right now or Christians in parts of Africa right now that, that they really lay everything on the line to be a witness for Jesus, Right? But uh, you, you think about how Christianity is mocked in, this own, in our own country. Look at how Hollywood mocks Christianity most of the time. Most, not all the time, but, but most of the time. Uh, what comes out of Hollywood is really a mockery to, to Christianity. Uh, think about public education. And thank God for those of you that are in public education. Thank God for those of you that are being a light in a dark place. That we need more of you, not less of you. But think about how public education, government-controlled education, how it basically mocks the Christian faith. Uh, not all, but many professors in higher education, thank God there are many good ones that are out there, but many of them, many of them mock uh, Christianity. They mock those who believe in the Bible. 
False religions mock Christianity. Atheists uh, and atheism mocks Christianity. Comedians, late night comedians, they have a heyday mocking Christianity. Nothing's really changed in 2,000 years. It says here, once again, in verse 13, others saw the same thing, heard the same thing, witnessed the same thing, and they were mockers. I pray that you would not be amongst the crowd of the mockers. The Bible says in Psalm 1, uh, you know, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, right, who sits with mockers. Hopefully that we are not those who choose to sit with mockers. And yet, it's only going to get worse. Because Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, he said, Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mockery, with their ridicule, with their insults, following after their own lusts. But look at what Paul says about this. In Galatians 6, 7, let's read this verse out loud together. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. You know, God is not mocked. And, uh, of course, we should never be in the business of mocking God uh, because, uh, you know, if we're laughing at God or the things that God is doing, eventually, you know what, God's going to have the last laugh, right? And uh, I was reading one time, I remember in Psalms 2, you know, early on as a Christian, and, and I saw this verse in Psalm 2 where it says that God sits in the heavens and he laughs. You know, God has a sense of humor. When he looks down at this crazy world that he created and he sees us doing all the crazy things that we're doing to try to denounce him or deny him or run from him or rebel him or, you know, uh, uh, reject him, he's like, are you kidding me? And then when world leaders, it says in Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? Why do these world leaders come together and think up ways to undermine God and his anointed one, which is Jesus? And God looks at that and he he just starts laughing. He's like, I can't believe it. Are you really that stupid? Yes, you are. Okay. Uh, so uh, God is not mocked, though. Now, there's a time. There's a time in, in history. There's a time in the book of Genesis when the human race thought that they could actually mock God and get away with it. And what happens here, we're going to look at today because it directly ties in to Pentecost. It directly ties in to what happened here, what was happening here in Acts chapter 2. So go with me to Genesis chapter 11, and we're going to study about the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel. This is the beginning of humanism, the spirit of humanism, the philosophy of humanism, the religion of humanism entered into the world here in Genesis chapter 11. This is a moment when the entire human race uh, made a feeble attempt to mock God and to not to, and to deny God his rightful place in his world that he created and in our lives. So Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now the whole earth, at this time, the whole earth had one language and one speech. They all spoke the same language. We don't know what that language was. Maybe English, maybe Hebrew, maybe Spanish. Maybe German, maybe Russian, we don't know. Maybe it was a language that is only known in heaven. We don't know, but they all spoke the same language. You know, the world wants you and I to speak their language. You know, the world wants us to be of the same speech. The world is quick to remind us when you fall out of line and you are not speaking the language of inclusion and the language of tolerance, the language that calls good evil and evil good, the language that says up is down and down is up. 
This was happening in Genesis 11. In verse 2 it says, And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Verse 3, Then they said to one another, the beginning of humanism, they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And the, the writer here is bringing out a, a couple of things. First of all, he's wanting us to understand that this was movement away from God, not towards God. And that's the problem here. It says that they picked up their stakes. That, that, that when it says they journeyed, it literally means in verse 2 that they picked up their stakes and they deliberately moved. In what direction? They moved from the east. So I'm going to ask you a question here. If somebody is moving from the east, what direction are they going? You guys are smart. Boy, you, you ate your Wheaties this morning. That's right. So they're moving from the east, and they're moving. That means they're moving towards the west, which means what? It means that they're moving away from the sun, and they're moving towards darkness, which metaphorically speaks of people turning their backs on God and moving away from God. And they found this plain in the land of Shinar, and they said, okay, we're going to make bricks. We don't need the stones that the Creator made. We're going to make bricks. Now, making bricks isn't bad. Making your own mortar isn't bad. But the intent and the reason that they were doing it is what made it bad. In verse 4, it says, And they said, once again, this is the second time, they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Uh, this was man's first attempt to build a skyscraper. Skyscrapers can speak of man's boasting in himself, man's arrogance, to be able to, to engineer and build such a massive edifice that reaches into the heavens. And what makes it offensive to God is when it is done in defiance to God and it's done to bring glory to oneself. That's what was happening here, right? So uh, it says, Let's, let us... Uh, Build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us, the third time this phrase is used, let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So the very thing they wanted to prevent was the very thing that was going to happen now. Look at verse 5. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Did you see verse 6 there? God himself said that because man, when man unifies himself, and man speaks a common language, whatever he dreams up, whatever he imagines, he will be able to accomplish. It will not be withheld from him. You know why that is so? Because human beings were created in the image and likeness of God. Every single person living in the world, every single person in this auditorium today, you have the spark of divinity on the inside of you. You were created. Angels were not created in the image and likeness of God. But you and I were created in the image and likeness of God. And we have the spark of divinity in us. We, we do not know our potential of what we can become and what we can accomplish and what we can do in God. But even though we are creating the image and likeness of God, and if we choose not to honor or obey God or serve God or follow God, we still have this spark of divinity. And man, man's ingenuity 
is unlimited. I mean, think about it. I remember when I was growing up, you know, I still like watching sci-fi shows. And I, was, I remember growing up that they would talk about, you know, colonizing on the moon. And people talked about being able to go to the moon. And at that time, it was an impossibility. We did not have the, the, the advanced technology to do that. And then, boom, next thing you know, you know, we're landing on the moon. And now they're talking about literally colonizing on the moon. That as things get worse and worse on planet Earth and a zombie apocalypse breaks out, that, you know, the rich people and the people in power will all go to the moon, right? And they're actually talking about colonizing the moon. I just want you to know that I already have my application in. I want to start the first uh, satellite Trinity Church on the moon. And then on a particular Sunday, I will be on the moon live broadcasting here. That'd be cool, huh? You know, they're even talking about colonizing on Mars. We now have the technology. Man, when man unites and man puts his heart and mind to something, nothing's impossible. And I saw on the news that they are looking for like 100 volunteers who would be willing to take a a one-way trip to Mars. Once you go there, you're not coming back. I thought, I know about 10 people I'd like to send. (laughs) How many of you all know about 10 people you'd like to send? You know, like, they go, but they won't come back? Yes, let me sign this person up and this person up, right? To think about, you know, the advancement of technology. You know, they're talking about artificial, te- uh, artificial intelligence when it comes to uh, uh, robots and computers. I mean, this is freaky stuff, right? I was watching the news, and they showed in Japan they have these new androids, these new robots that look human. They're going to be doing news broadcasting. And they showed these, these uh, their motion was almost human-like. And the way they would look, and then they, were, they, would, they would talk. I mean, how, it, was, it was creepy. Let me just let you know it was creepy. Because then they would turn their neck. It looked like they had skin, but it looked, didn't, didn't look like skin. It's like rubber, you know, because they have rubber. They're not, it's not human skin yet. And uh, I, thought to, I told Gloria, I said, can you imagine? The day will come probably when the government will assign each of us our own Android under the disguise that it's there to help you and serve you. And, you know, if you're sick, you know, they'll know what to do. They'll clean your house. They'll cook and all that stuff. Like, hey, yeah, bring me my Android government, you know. And it'll be like keeping tabs on us. You're like, you're really getting off now. Hey, sci-fi becomes reality eventually, right? And I told Gloria, can you imagine we had one of these androids in our home and, and we were sleeping in the middle of the night. We woke up and they were like staring at us. You know, reach for the gun. You know what I'm talking about? I, I saw iRobot. But anyway, <laughs> nothing's impossible. And then I'm reading the news. I'm not making this up. No, I'm going to ask for a show of hands. I'm reading the news, and I found out that Google comes out, came out with this new satellite system, this new computerized satellite system, and it's called Skybox. How many of you saw that in the news? This new system called Skybox. And with it, they're able to track every human being. With it, they're able to track every automobile. They'll be able to... to, uh, to uh, lay out the grid of every city, every street, every road, which they're going to use, so they say, they're going to use for these driverless automobiles. You imagine we're right around the corner of having driverless automobiles? I mean, you know, I drive in Lubbock sometimes, and it seems like there's already driverless automobiles. You know what I'm talking about? (laughs) The computer's glitching on them. So what's it going to be like, you know, when we actually have, you're going to be driving, you're going to be passing a car, and the person's going to be in the back seat, you know, on their iPhone, whatever, texting, social networking. But, but here's the crazy thing. It's called Skybox. And I remember I saw all the Terminator movies, okay? I saw all the Terminator movies, and when the machines take over the planet and they want to exterminate all the humans, guess what that computer system was called? 
Skynet. Now, you better catch up on what's going on. You better go rent those Terminator movies. <laughs> what am I saying? I'm saying what God says here, when man unites and speaks the same language and he puts his mind and heart to accomplish or to achieve something, nothing will be withheld from man until God says, okay, you've crossed the line. Enough is enough. What you are doing has just triggered a reaction, a chain reaction of events that can no longer be stopped, and God supernaturally intervenes. I believe, once again, we are coming to a place as a population on planet Earth that we have been pushing the limits of some of our not-so-ethical scientific advancements and that God is just about ready to do again what he did here in Babylon thousands of years ago. Look at verse 7. God says, come, let us. Now remember the humans at that time three times said, let us, let us make a name, let us do this, let us build a city. And God said, okay, let us, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, let us go down there and confuse their languages that they may not understand one another's speech. So Jehovah scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord, Jehovah, confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Amazing. You see, this ties into Pentecost, uh, Pentecost is rightfully, has rightfully been called anti-Babel because Pentecost was the reversal where God reversed what he did at Babel. You see, at Babel, language was used to scatter. At Pentecost, language was used to gather. In Genesis, God uh, divided, but at Pentecost, God united people from every nation in the known world at that time. At Babel, God judged. At Pentecost, God blessed. At Babel, man wanted to be praised, but at Pentecost, God was praised. Babel was the beginning of man-centered humanism, but Pentecost, the beginning of an an entirely new entity upon the earth called the church, which we are now a part of. Babel represented a humanistic, monolithic culture void and absent of God. But Pentecost was a spirit-breathed, spirit-induced, mosaic ingathering of culturally diverse people from many different languages and countries, all hearing in their own language the wonderful works of God. And whereas God used Babel to scatter, God used Pentecost to gather so that in that gathering they would then go into all the world and share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't God's timing exquisite, right? It's always right on time. And that's why God wants us, the heirs of Pentecost, as it says in 1 Corinthians 1:10, Paul said, now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. That there be no divisions among you. Are you listening to me? That there be no divisions among you. You hear that, Catholics? You hear that, Protestants? That there be no divisions among you. Do you hear that, Baptists? Do you hear that, Pentecostals? That there be no divisions among you. Do you hear that, every local church that lifts up the name of Jesus in the city of Lubbock and in the state of Texas and throughout America? 
that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Imagine what the people of God could do if we would all speak the same language, be of the same mind, of the same heart, to make Jesus famous in the world, how we could change the world in less than a generation. And what's the goal in all of this? Exodus 9.16 Exodus 9.16 says, But I have spared you for a purpose, to show you my power, and to spread my fame throughout the earth. What does God want us to do? What is Pentecost all about? What is the book of Acts all about? God ignites a fire, and he wants this fire to burn and spread throughout the entire planet, making God famous throughout the earth. So you know what? We've got to be careful what we spend our lives building. We have to make sure that we're not building our own towers of Babel, right? But we have to make sure that what we're building, we're building for the right reason, for the right, with, the, with the right heart, with the right motive. We can build a church, we can build a business, we can build a family to either make a name for ourselves or to make and bring glory to God and to make his name famous in all the earth. You see, the towers that we erect in our own name for our own personal gain, they will come tumbling down. I can, I can build a family I can build a church, I can build a business, I can do it for God or I can do it for myself. If I do it for myself, if you do it for yourself, it will ultimately fail. But if we do it for God, it will ultimately prevail. So in closing, I, I want to I give you three challenges. I want to challenge all of us today uh, to make sure that we, we, we tear down our own towers of Babel. Lest God have to step in and tear down those towers of Babel. And there are three of them. And number one, we need, to, we need to stop building the tower of self-centered rule. What made the people at Babel sinful against God is that they were erecting this tower. It was a tower of self-centered rule. On three occasions they said, let us, let us, let us make a name for ourselves. Let's do this without God. We don't need God. We don't need to follow God's rules. We can make up our own rules. Sound familiar? So many people in our world, so many people in our culture today, we don't need these outdated laws and commands of God. We, we can make up our own. We can rewrite them. We can do it. Come on, world, let's get together. Let's do it our way. <laughs> I remember growing up in my dad's lounge. They had this thing called a, listen to me, young people, they had this thing called a jukebox, okay? And, and they actually had these things called records inside of it. And old people, you know, would go up and put their money in it. And they would be able to select the songs that they wanted to listen to. And inevitably, I practically grew up there in my dad's, in my dad's lounge, right? Inevitably, everybody would pick the same song that I learned to hate by Frank Sinatra. I did it my way. I'm like, oh, that song again, I can't stand it one more time. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die if I hear that song one more time. Have you ever, have you ever listened or, or seen the lyrics of that song? How prideful, how arrogant. I did it my way, my way. Man's attempt to say, I don't need you, God. I don't need your rules. I don't need to do it your way. When it comes to marriage, I don't have to do it your way. I can do it my way. When it comes to sex, God, I don't have to follow your rules. I don't have to do it your way. I can do it my way. When it comes to entertainment, God, I don't have to do it your way. I can do it my way. And God says, oh, really? 
You see, God is not mocked. Look at what James says. Not self-centered rule, but Christ-centered living. Christ-centered living. Look at James 4, 13 through 16. Look here. Look here, you who say today or tomorrow we're going to do a certain, we're going to go to a certain town and we're going to stay there a year. Now, God's not against travel, right? Uh, Barry, you guys were just in Israel, right? Would you say that they calculated uh, all the cities that Jesus went to and he, they, they, they suppose he traveled how many miles? 22,000 in what, three and a half years or like his whole life? His whole life. So, you know, in, in Israel, everywhere you want to go, you'd have to walk in the time of Jesus, right? So they, they, somebody did the math and they accumulated that Jesus walked over 22,000 miles. That's like the whole circumference of the planet Earth. You know what I'm talking about? That's some serious walking. So God's not against travel. He's against travel without including him in that, right? And then it goes on, he goes on to say, we will do business there and we will make a profit. Is God against you having a business? No. Is God against you making a profit? No. Deuteronomy 8.18, God simply wants to remind you, it is I that gives you power to get wealth that you might establish my covenant. God's not against you having a business. God's not against you running a business. God's not against you traveling. God's not against you making a profit. But he is against it if you plan to make those plans absent of God. Look at verse 14. How you do, how, how you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. Nobody in here is guaranteed tomorrow. Nobody knows what tomorrow will bring. Nobody knows what tomorrow will be like. Hopefully, it'll be better than today. But when nobody has that guarantee. Day before yesterday, I got word that a personal friend of mine, my age, that was a part of our former church that I absolutely adored and loved. He was an awesome, awesome guy. Father of two. Godly husband, godly father, great guy. Drop dead heart attack. He was working out with a friend. They were in San Diego on a Christian basketball camp. He did a, a CrossFit workout with a friend. He was, he was a former bodybuilder. He, he told his friend, he said, I'm not, I'm not feeling good. And the friend said, you don't look too good. He goes, man, I got some pains in my chest. And his friend said, should I call 911? Well, his friend shouldn't have asked. He should have just called. He said, no, no, I'm good. I'm going to go back upstairs to the hotel. You know, they were in a hotel. I'm going to go back upstairs to be with my wife. And he went back upstairs and his wife said, Honey, you don't look good. He goes, man, I'm not feeling good. And he fell down. He collapsed. And she started performing CPR on him. Called 911 and it was too late. He's gone. Thank, thankfully, he's in heaven. But he leaves behind a, a wife and two kids. 11 and 12. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. The Thomas family just had an unfortunate tragedy. Their, your nephew that was uh, killed in an accident. The grief and the pain that families feel. And we don't know what tomorrow will bring. So how do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while and then it's gone. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wants us to. It's including God in your plans. Verse 16, otherwise you are boasting about your own plans. And all such boasting is evil. What they did at Babel was the evil. Because they're saying, let us. It's the tower of, of self-centered rule. Let us. No. Let God. Let God have his way. Uh, the second tower that we need to avoid is the tower of self-centered reliance. The tower of self-centered 
reliance. I don't need God. God's never done me any favors. I can pull myself up. I've always pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. Really. You see, God exalts the humble, but he humbles the prideful. He resists the proud, but he gives grace. What attracts God to you and me is your humility, our humility, our dependency upon him. We get up every morning, we say, God, I'm probably going to fail a bunch of times today, but, but I, I know, Lord, that you're going to be there for me, and I need you, and I rely on you, and I depend on you. Thank you, God, for being there. That attracts God's favor into your life and into my life. History is replete with examples of how the mighty have fallen, right? Israel fell, Egypt of old fell, Babylon fell, the Persian Empire fell, Athens fell, Rome fell, Britain fell from its status of a superpower in the world. And one day, America will fall. Listen, I'm just as patriotic as the next guy in here today. I love this country, and I love what this country stood for, not what it stands for today. I don't believe it's too late, but here's what I know. I'm not naive. I'm a student of history. I'm a student of Scripture, and here's what I know. Judgment cannot be denied. It can only be delayed. And may God, by his grace, delay the judgment, because God is not mocked whatsoever a man or a nation sows. That shall he reap. May it be delayed long enough so that your loved ones and my loved ones and the lost ones that are still in this nation and still in this world, because America is still the beacon of hope around the world for the gospel of Jesus Christ. With all of our hang-ups and with all of our problems, God has still shed his grace upon this nation, and we still have a mission that we must fulfill, and we must see it happen in our lifetime. I remember reading the book by Jim Collins, How the Mighty Fall. And he talks about five stages of decline. Five, and as I was, I was studying this, it reminded me of what I read. And the five stages of decline, he says in his book, so appropriately, he says the first stage in the five stages of decline for a nation, for a business, for an organization, for a family, for a life. The first stage is what he calls hubris, born of success. Hubris. It's an interesting word, hubris. It means a wanton arrogance resulting from excessive pride. The word is actually in the Bible. It's, it's a Greek word, hubris. It's almost pronounced the exact same way that we pronounce it in English, hubris. In uh, the book of Acts, chapter 27, Paul was, was uh, uh, on a trip sailing from Jerusalem to Rome where he was going to stand before Caesar. And they were at a port called Fair Havens. And Paul was warned of the Lord that they should not disembarked, that they should not go on this journey at this time. But the captain and the crew did not listen to the Apostle Paul, and Paul said, this journey will result in great hurt, H-U-R-T, great hurt. You look up that word hurt in the Strong's Concordance, it's the, it's the Greek word hubris. Anytime we don't listen to God and we go our own way, we'll always, we're always going into a storm, and it will cause great hurt. Hubris causes great hurt, not only in your life, but the life of those that you, you say you love and care about. Well, they, they disembark and they begin on this journey, and it's met with great hurt and damage to the ship and almost loss of life. And Paul reminds them in verse 21 of Acts 27, he said, Sirs, you should have hearkened unto me and not have loosed from Crete 
and to gain this harm. It's that word again, hubris. Hubris. God can humble those who exalt themselves. Remember the story of Pharaoh, the Exodus, and Moses. God can humble. Remember the story of King Nebuchadnezzar. One day he, he walked out on his, of his palace, on his balcony, and he was looking at the splendor of his empire that he had built. The glory and the power of his empire and how he was the greatest king that had ever lived. And he was just soaking in the moment when God said, you've gone too far. And he struck him and he became insane. And for the next seven years, he lived like an animal until the seven years was ended and his mind was given back to him and the first words that came out of his mouth, he glorified the God of heaven, the creator of all things. There's a story of Herod in the book of Acts. He was a great orator, and he stood up, and he gave a great oratorical speech, and the people said, that the, 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 he sounds like a God and not a man. He sounds like a God and not a man. And Herod's like, oh, yeah, you know it. I'm, I'm feeling it too. And I, I added that part, but I'm not making this up. The Bible says that God sent a death angel and struck him with worms. He was consumed with worms, and he dropped dead, and he died. How many know you don't want to get on God's bad side? I'm just saying. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, there is a point where we can push God way too far. We can cross that invisible boundary line, and God says, your time is up, and he can pull the rug out from under you and me. But what's the heart of God? God wants us to not be self-centered rule or self-centered reliance. He wants us to rely on him, depend on him. Because you know what God wants to do? God wants to make your name great. He called a guy, nobody out of Ur, the Chaldees by the name of Abram. And God said, listen, I'm going I'm to enter into a covenant with you by, purely by God's grace, not because Abraham was anything special. And he said this, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you into a great nation, and I'm going to make your name great. And why was God wanting to do that for Abraham? He said, because I want you to be blessed so that you could be a blessing. You know what God wants to do in your life and my life? We are, we are living under the blessing of Abraham through Jesus. We are a part of the Abrahamic promise that comes through the seed. Not seeds, but through the seed, Jesus Christ. We are now heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Did you know that God does not want to humiliate? He wants to elevate. God does not want to humble you. He wants to promote you. But he's simply waiting for you and I to stop trying to do it on our own. To stop building our own towers of Babel and say, God, I'm going to trust you with all my heart. I'm going to trust you with all my life. And I'm going to do it your way and not my way, God. And then he wants to bless you. He wants to make your name great. He wants to bring blessing into your life. Why? Why? So you can make a name for yourself. No, no, no. So you can spread the fame of God throughout the world. God wants to exalt you and God wants to promote you and God wants to elevate you. He wants to bless you so that you in return can be a blessing to others. Can we thank the Lord for his goodness? And the final tower that we need to make sure that we're not building is the tower of self-centered rebellion. The people were rebelling against God. They were rebelling against God's command. Remember what God commanded Adam and Eve in the garden? What did he say? He said, I want you to be fruitful and I want you to multiply and I want you to, I want you to fill the earth, replenish the earth, fill the earth. Right after Noah, right after the flood, you know, you know what God told Noah? Uh, and, and as the world had a reset moment and, and Noah was going to repopulate the world once again, what did God tell Noah? The same thing, the Genesis mandate. He said, be fruitful and multiply. God practices and preaches a population theology. He wants us to fill the earth with godly people. He wants you to be fruitful and multiply. You know what that means for every single person in here? You know what that means? He wants you to get married as quickly as you can. Come on, guys, get busy. 
There's some good women in this church. Get your life in order, get things situated, and then let's, let's go. Let's get, let's get this thing going, okay? Uh, and, and then with, that means for those of you that are married, because you've got to first get married, and then you become fruitful and multiply. You don't become fruitful and multiply and then say, hmm, I think we better get married. That's, that's the opposite way, okay? That's the world's way. It's not God's way. Are you listening to me, right? So those of you that are married, if you don't have any kids yet, I'm going to end church early, get home, get busy. Let's go. Come on, man. Be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth. Let's go. Let's get busy, all right? We, we, we need more good people having kids than bad people having kids. That's what it's all about. Read Malachi. You know right, the, one of the reasons why God hates divorce? There are a couple of reasons why he hates divorce. It's the tearing of flesh. But he hates divorce because it stops what he wants, godly seed populating the world. Pentecost is about God's population theology. He gathered with languages that he once used to scatter and he gathered all of these people and on the day of Pentecost 3,000 were saved only so that they would be scattered once again so they would go to the four corners of the earth and preach the wonderful works of God now I'm, I know some of you are wondering what in the world is this arrow doing up here like what does this have to do with the message it's kind of like weird I just maybe you just noticed it you're like, oh, I know what that means. He's going he's to end the sermon by saying, if I don't get right with Jesus, I'm going down. <laughs> well, it could mean that. That's one interpretation. But you know what that means? At Pentecost, God came down. At Babel, God came down. At the cross of Jesus, God came down. That arrow is to remind us we can't get to God no matter how hard we try. That's why God always comes down to us. And God's coming down to you and me today in this service, in this message. And what's he saying to you? What's he calling you to do with him, through him, and for him, and by him? God in his goodness will always come down if we'll simply humble ourselves. God's glory will show up and his blessing will come and manifest in our lives so that we could spread his name throughout the earth and spread his fame throughout the world. I like every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, we thank you today. We thank you that you're the God that comes down to our level because we can't get up to your level. Thank you that, Lord, if we will humble ourselves, you will exalt us. But if we exalt ourselves, you will humble us. And so, Lord, today, by the power of your Holy Spirit, may we just humble ourselves. May every, every father in here humble himself to be the father he's called to be. May, may every man humble himself. May every husband humble himself to be the husband he's called to be. May every man humble himself to be the godly man, the loving, compassionate, caring, strong, courageous man of faith that you've called him to be. May every woman, may every mother and every wife and every young woman, may they humble themselves to be the, the women you've called them to be, to put Jesus first in all that they do. Help us, God, to tear down our towers of Babel. Help us to use the language that you've blessed us with to declare the wonderful works of God. Heads bowed and eyes closed. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, you can pray this prayer and receive Christ into your life. He will come down from heaven and he'll come into your heart. If you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Pray this prayer out loud with the rest of us. Dear God in heaven, I know I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. There's only one Savior. His name is Jesus. I call upon you, Jesus. I ask you now, come into my heart, come into my life. Be my Lord, be my Savior. I turn from sin to the true and living God. I receive his love, his grace, and his forgiveness. 
Fill me now with your Holy Spirit and give me strength to live for you and serve you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Can we thank the Lord together, church family? Hey, we love you guys. Have a safe and happy fourth.